Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, joined today by my colleague, Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrows. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, ready to launch into our final episode of the trilogy. I know it's kind of crazy to talk about that. Is this the, the prequel or the, the prequel trilogy or the uh, the original Star Wars? I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but I'm- Oh no, this is, I'm going to totally expose myself. I've never seen a Star Wars movie. Oh my God. Okay. See, that's my childhood. My uh, So actually, fun fact, Star Wars Episode Three came out on my ninth birthday. I saw it with all my friends for my birthday and I got a bootleg copy of it because one of my friend's dads knew the producer. So- I, uh, I watched it like 50 times before it was even out of theaters, and it's been ingrained in my memory ever since. So I always ask people about Star Wars. I know way too much about it, but uh, yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to jump into these. We're going to be talking about the five starters today. Um, and you're actually starting off today. Who do you want to start off with? I think we're just going to hit off the big one first and just go straight to Victor. So my play for Victor, if I can get my stuff in order here is we are in the bubble playing in game one of the playoffs. It is almost towards the end of the first quarter. Victor's played the first, you know, seven minutes here. Uh, He's being defended by Jay Crowder. Malcolm Brogdon goes and sets a screen for him wisely, gets him a switch against Tyler Hero on the left side of the floor. Everyone else clears out. He has the whole side of the floor to attack, does a few scissor dribbles, backs up like, oh, he might attack the switch and then just ends up taking a sidestep three that he misses. And I feel like that's a telling play because if I'm the Pacers headed into, you know, what is going to be a pretty pivotal offseason potentially with his contract extension or whatever they end up doing with that, like I need to know what the reasoning for plays like that in the playoffs was. Like, is that because he wasn't used to playing longer minute bursts? Is it because he was chasing Duncan Robinson around? Or is this Victor's just not ready to be attacking the paint yet? I mean, he took 60% of his shots in the playoffs as threes. He really didn't get to the line other than, I believe it was game two. He had eight free throw attempts. And I know we touched on this during the playoffs, but of those attempts, like one of them was because the Heat was were in the bonus and he drew an off-ball foul and the other four when, when the game was already kind of decided. So he wasn't drawing a lot of fouls by getting into the paint. So for me, this play is one where I think that the Pacers really need to suss out what is entirely going on with why he isn't getting into the restricted area as much anymore, especially when he had this degree of a favorable switch and how hard it was for the Pacers to score that. I mean, he effectively settled for a three here. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's totally where he was at, especially in the bubble. Cause you know, we, we talked about it before too. I mean, towards the end of the, the regular season before the hiatus, he was starting to look a little bit uh, like he was turning the quarter, at least in, in some spurts. Uh, but in the bubble, I mean, that was just, that was the story. And it's actually, it's, I mean, not funny, but more coincidental. I went back and I watched some of his film in OKC. And what we saw in the in the bubble honestly makes me think of Victor from OKC. Obviously, you know, I think he drove a little bit more. 
Um, but before he he shedded a lot of the weight that he was carrying. Not like he was ever like completely out of shape or anything, but I mean he went through obviously a massive um, physique change when he came to Indiana. I mean he, he just could not beat anyone off the dribble in the bubble. Like and it also was to the point where he didn't even try it. Like you're talking about right here. And I think we look at him and if if that's the player he is, uh, that totally changes the outlook. Like you're saying and. Um, it, it completely changes the outlook for not just him and his contract, but for the Pacers in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll probably have to toss in here just for the sake, because because this is end-of-season content. Um, per Bobby Marks over at ESPN.com, the max extension that the Pacers can offer him right now coming up in October is four years, $112 million, which that's more than what they reportedly offered him last year when – they were in extension negotiations. That was reported out of New York as four years 80. If mm-hmm. if he were to take that next summer, that would be 28 less than what he could be offered by another team, 28 million less and 77 million less than what the Pacers can offer in 2021. I just think, I mean, we'll get into this more as I move through my next two talking points, but you look at those numbers and, and based on what we saw in the bubble, I'm not saying that Victor can't get back to, to what he was, but if I'm the front office looking at what we just saw, I would have a hard time not entering this into a very measured approach. I don't, I mean, it's crazy because whenever that four year 80 number was initially reported, I remember thinking, you know, wow, that could turn out to backfire later on. That feels like a low ball considering that that's, you know, technically less than what he's currently earning and less than what they're paying Malcolm Brogdon. But now it's kind of like you look at that four year 112 number and that just feels very big. Yeah. Especially, I mean, this will be his age 28 season, right? I mean, I think, Either yeah, I think he just turned twenty eight like last month. Uh, mm-hmm. was, yeah, so I mean, and, and you just think about the back end of that contract. Obviously, I mean, what what happens in the first couple of years is just as important. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it's we'll, we'll definitely get into it more. But I, I agree. It's because I, I remember you, me, and it was you, me, and Jeff Siegel before he got hired by Clutch. We were uh, we were talking about that because we did that right after the news drop from Ian Bagley, and we talked about that as being a low ball, <laughs> and now. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, I think you'd have to offer him four for eight if you knew he was going to take it. But still, it's even even then. I don't know. Okay, so headed in as the segue from that, my one number, which kind of goes back to that play, is .71, which is what his assist-to-turnover ratio was in the playoffs. Obviously, that's below C-level. He had 14 turnovers to 10 assists. That's not the only player that we'll get into later. Um there was two other Pacers in the starters that were very close to either being below sea level or also right at about level and assisted turnover ratio. But um, that just goes back to somewhat how the heat were defending. I mean, they were really pinching in on driving lanes and, and um, loading up at the blocks and the elbows. So, I mean, even then that play that I just mentioned, like that's one that Victor really needed to attack because it was giving them an attack point from the side instead of at the top where he was going to be seeing extra defenders. But um, his left to right cross is just really messy right now. A lot of his turnovers this season as a whole were lost ball turnovers. These aren't even like, you know, he's, he's passing it out of bounds or whatever. And it just makes you wonder when you see that. I think ideally what you envision the relationship between Malcolm Brogdon and Victor to be is, and, and, you know, some of this is semantics because 
you look back a season ago and Darren Collison led the team in time of possession, even before Oladipo went down with a season ending injury. So I hate to like nitpick and be like, Oh, who, who's the point guard, you know, that type of a terminology, but in the sense of if Victor's going to be having more of a ball dominant role, it makes you a little bit nervous that he's turning it over to this extent versus his passing. Cause like I said, I think ideally it would be Victor having more of a on ball role with Malcolm sliding off into spot up attempts and getting some easier shots. But if Victor's not delivering precise passes or he can't even hold on to the ball, then, then that math gets dicier for both of them, obviously. Yeah, definitely. And I think in terms of speaking of the left to right cross, that reminds me of, I, I can't, I think it was in game, it was game two or game three um, when he's coming up the, the far side of the court on the right. So we're coming the, – the left side is where the Heat are at on the telecast. Um, I think it was in the third, second quarter because it was like right before half. And um, Vic totally – I think he bounces the ball into his knee when he's trying to cross it over and obviously goes out of bounds, turnover. And you see him in between, you know, obviously because I think it went to timeout right after that. Um, and you see him uh, – if you just notice in like the bottom right corner of the screen – you see him kind of like looking at his hands and like fake dribbling in between his legs without the ball. Yes, so I remember that. That's you can just totally tell that it was his legs just were not with the rest of his body, and I, that, that that was something I kept coming back to, and um, especially after the playmaking that we saw him show before the bubble. I mean, pre hiatus, I actually thought that he'd added some stuff to his repertoire, like the pocket passes he was putting in um, looked much crisper than they had before his injuries. You could tell all the stuff we've been working on, but for whatever reason, it just was not there in the bubble. And I totally agree with you because we, we've talked about that before as well, and we'll get into it talking about Malcolm. Um, but I think, you know, clear, the ideal version of this team is with, obviously, you know, modern basketball. We're not – that doesn't have to be a technical point guard. Um, but you, you need somebody who is kind of pounding the ball out and, and getting it distributed. And I think um, just off of how uh, – off-ball flow could work for the team. I think it, it makes sense for Vic to have to be that guy if this team's going to reach its maximum value. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a conundrum. Like, do you think that there's it's maybe a mental aspect or it's just physical? I mean, I don't know. Because even before the bubble, like, there was times where he's, like, putting, like, top spin and back spin and the passes looked kind of mm-hmm. flashy. Or, you know, the one really good one he did have, I don't even remember which one of the – I think it was a scrimmage. He got all the way into the paint, split a trap, and then – threw a hook pass back to Brogdon at the slide. And that, that was a new one that you wouldn't have seen, but so much of the time, like his passes aren't directly into the pocket. Like he'll have one really kind of flashy one. And then you'll notice that somebody's having to lean down to get it, or they're having to raise up. And if you're lofting those up over the top, then the people have longer to close out. Like it makes me nervous to see, you know, point guard Vic. Like I know that (laughs) there was an article out there talking about Mike D'Antoni and how, you know, all oh, the Pacers could envision seeing him as James, James Harden 2.0. And I'm like, well, you know, not to delve too deeply into that, but, like, I think that James Harden is a higher IQ playmaker than what Victor is and, and can hit more spots on the floor than what Victor can. But, I mean, I, I don't know where all of it's coming from, but it just – it was interesting because as that series progressed, I looked this up by the game-by-game data on Synergy. He started out and had – his ISOs descended and his spot ups and his off screen attempts went up as the series went on. So his ISOs went from 12 to seven to five disregarding game one when he didn't play all the minutes because of the eye scratch and his spot ups and his off screen attempts went from five to 10 
the 13. And you could see some of the time when they were running like an, an Iverson cut for TJ Warren cutting one way, they were lifting mm-hmm. Victor up, up from the bottom to cut for a three. And he's not a great shooter off screens, but his field goal percentage did respond to getting, um, more attempts off ball. So just kind of figuring out that relationship between Victor and Brogdon is, is going to be a number one for whoever the next coach comes in to be. But um, the over under I have is um, over his first four seasons, Victor at the rim shot between 55 and 60% over those first four years during his all-star year, he shot 67%, which is absurd. Yeah. Absurdly good. Um, 2018-19, prior to his injury, he was back down, you would say, regressed, but still right at 60, um, 60.2. And this year, you know, kind of cue the sad trombone noise. It was 45.7 and a career low of 3.1 free throw attempts per game. So in a certain respect, where I'm going with this is, it's almost like he's battling stagflation to an extent, like to throw out an economic term, because you don't know, you don't know which thing to, to solve first to a degree, because his shooting has, was really up and down and to battle some of the consistency that he's had his whole career from inconsistency, I should say from three sort of over his entire career, you want him to be able to get to the rim and draw free throws. The more that he can get to the free throw line, then, then that is easier to weather throughout the course of a season. But at the same time, I also looked up on synergy and his defender went under the pick 19.8% of the time in pick and roll situations this year, which the prior two years, it was 10% and 10.6%. So with a defender ducking under, it's then going to be harder for him to get into the lane and be able to get into the restricted area, even if he has his mind set on that because he's seeing an extra person. So it's like until, until he gets his shot established well and people start consistently going over on picks, it's going to be harder for him to get into the paint and get to the free throw line. But until he gets to the paint and to the free throw line, it's going to be harder to weather the shooting that's up and down. So the over-under after that long-winded explanation is, I have, do you think that he can get back up over 60% in any future season? Like, do you think he can finish 60% at the rim again? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Wow. Um, After watching all the the playoff games in the bubble, I struggle to say over, to be completely honest. Um, And I hope that I'm wrong, but I I think I would take the under. Personally, I think I would take the under. I think I would take the under too, because, I mean, he's only got over 60% one season in his career. Mm-hmm. And, and again, like what we saw, and then it, it brings it all back to the contract negotiation then. And I just kind of feel like I talked about this on the Strickland and I've taught, I, I go back and forth with all of it. And obviously you want Kevin Pritchard and Victor Oladipo to be able to sit down and have a very honest conversation about what his intentions are is, is if he wasn't going to accept an extension, is it merely a financial decision or, you know, does he want to get into a new market? Is it about his own brand? You know, whatever that may be, but if I'm Kevin Pritchard, I'm going to have a hard time. I think I would just want to take the measured approach because the one thing that's in the Pacers' favor is he has every reason in the world to come back and play at the best level possible. Like, if he wants to make the most money possible, the best way to do that is to improve on what we just saw in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like I, I would kind of let that wait out and kind of make him earn that and reevaluate things at the trade deadline. Like, I, I know that's a risky gamble to take, but before I put a number, like, I just don't feel comfortable putting a number on what we just saw. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, 
it's hard to, like you're saying, it's hard to even equate what, what you would offer him. Like, I mean, there were some flashes of like, maybe, okay, I could see the four for 80 looks fine. Uh, but then there are other moments where it's like, wow, if we, if the, if Kevin Pritchard gave him four for 112, I would just tear up the cap sheet and burn it. Like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. And I, that definitely comes across as harsh, but, um, it's interesting. One thing I wanted to ask you just kind of in regards to this as a whole, I think I actually heard some people talk about how happy they were seeing how many more pull-up threes he was taking. And while he is a solid pull-up three shooter, he's actually better from pull-ups than off the catch, if I remember correctly. Um, but I think for me, it, it actually is dis- a little bit discerning to me, um, just the way that he was kind of – I don't even think it was a comfort thing. I think a lot of the threes you were taking, he was taking were not even rhythm shots or just he was kind of forced into them because he wasn't even trying to drive. And I think for me, that's just the big selling point for me. I, I think obviously you want this team to take more threes, but the right threes like we've talked about many times. Um, and I think if you don't have so, – because the team just does not have someone who is a real rim threat. Like there's no one you're, you're worried about getting to the line who is putting pressure on the rim and collapsing the defense to try and kick out and, and get open looks that way, because that's been an issue for the team all year. Malcolm can get to the rim, but he's not really a, a, a giant threat to finish there, which we'll get to later. But I don't know. I think for me, I just think with the kind of player that you need Vic to be for the money that you would have to pay him. I, I don't know. I, I think I fall in line with you though, in terms of seeing what happens, uh, you know, in the season, let him play in the form and see where you go from there, because I I don't think that um, just you know being smart about how you're how you're conducting business. I don't think you can uh, just go in and offer him a four year deal regardless of the money uh, based on on how he's performed so far. Well, right, because I mean we already know that he turned down the four year eighty, so I can't imagine that he would be like coming back to the table and being like, oh yeah, I've circled back. Like if he did circle back to that number, wouldn't it? Kind of bring you a little bit of reason. Yeah, that would be concerning. It would be, why are you willing to come back down to this number? <laughs> yeah. But um, to to your point about the pull up jump shots, like I don't, I mean, that was part of his kind of renaissance there in seventeen eighteen. Is you know mm-hmm. taking those pull up jump shots in transition that opens the floor for him more. But to your point, taking sixty percent of his shots as threes in the playoffs is too high of a number. Yeah. Like because he's not a good enough shooter to uh, not a good enough or consistent enough shooter to maintain that. I mean, he did shoot 36%, which was better than his overall marks in the bubble, but it's still up and down, but yeah. Yeah. So we, I will throw it to you. Who do we have next? That's a good question. You know what? I think just to, in, in going with the backcourt, we'll go with Malcolm. I'll, we'll talk good about choice, Malcolm. Good choice. All right. So my one play is actually, uh, I actually had two that I, I, you know, one is more of just a symbolic of, of, the season and I think as time went on um I always thought about just Malcolm's one move and I was like wow because I think you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about there's just one move that that you can guarantee you'll see from Malcolm about six times a game and a if, reverse layup yep a reverse layup coming you know it's always he, he backs up into the pick and then I mean normally it's no it's normally into an iso and then he'll come down down the baseline up and under with the left hand on a reverse and I, I think actually Bam keyed in on that uh, later on in the series because that was one of the first things I talked about with some of my friends who, who covered the Heat. I was like, oh, well, all you got to tell Bam is wait for him to come up with his left hand on the other side of the basket when he comes comes baseline. But um, no, my, my play for Malcolm 
was against Charlotte in, I think, February. Um, he took a three, and it hit the very back of the rim, bounced up, hit the shot clock, rolled to the back, and then tipped back over and went back through. So, of course, shot doesn't count. Um, th- is this really an actual basketball play? No, not really. But for me, this is symbolic because when Malcolm Brogdon was in- involved in the sign-and-trade, I, I, you know, I thought about his utility as an off-ball shooter or just a shooter in general. I mean, he was, one. I think, the, the 12th person in history to get – 12th or 11th, I can't remember uh, – to get – 50 49 in the season and it was it was well deserved completely earned uh it's just lights out from just about anywhere um this season his shot was just it was never really there except for like maybe the um first 15 games of the season even then he was only shooting like 34 percent for three and granted a lot of that is the the type of shot he's taking he took a lot more pull-ups this year um and we'll get into some of the other numbers as well on that but uh that's that's my play and kind of i just it was symbolic for me because the shots he was taking, I mean, that was a pull-up three, and then it did everything but go into the rim. And I mean, going going through the hoop. And so that's that's kind of what I thought a little bit with Malcolm this year. Right, sure. So his, his three-point percentage definitely obviously wasn't close to his um, 40, 50, 90 season the year prior. Um, he definitely took more pull-up threes instead of catch-and-shoot threes. And I think it was important for him to establish – I remember I wrote early in the season that, like, you know, today's pain could be tomorrow's gain. Like I thought mm-hmm. before Victor got back, it was important for him to show because he really barely took any of those with the Bucks. that, you yeah. know, I'm willing to take these, these pull up threes or these pull up mid range shots. And, and so that Victor isn't seeing another defender at the nail that I, I can play both these roles. Plus Nate's offense is so um, point guard heavy and the, the, um, you know, brought in TJ McConnell and going back to Darren Collison usually have high times of possession. So if he was going to do that, he needed to be able to shoot him. But taking those tougher shots and creating some of his own threes and getting more catch and shoots that were um, tighter contested than what he would have had off of a sits from Giannis and Milwaukee's, you know, gravitational system made that number not so good. It showed that both sides kind of missed each other to an extent, but I think you also have to factor in that he did have the dislocated finger in December. I don't know how much that impacted his shooting and along with the concussion and along with the myriad of other, you know, hamstring and back spasms and the, the hip issue at the end of the year, like the longer the season wore on, he was, he was carrying more and more injuries. And I didn't look. I don't have it with me, but he did shoot better in the playoffs. Yeah, he, than shot, he shot. I think he shot like thirty-five or thirty-six percent in the playoffs. Right. So some of those shots were tougher, but it is kind of funny because I did an over/under piece preseason last year, and one of them was I think I set his over/under for threes at thirty-six percent, assuming that there would be some drop-off because of some of the factors we just said, and obviously he was even far below that. But you just think in your head, and you think if Victor's back to being at least closer to what he was in 2017-18 even what he was at the beginning of 2018-19 before he got injured he's the best like we said earlier like he's going to draw more gravity and hopefully some of those shots would be open for Brogdon if he can deliver an accurate pass out I mean I think some of the ball handling stuff sorts itself out and what roles they have just by both of them showing a little bit of internal development. Like, I don't think they necessarily have to rethink the wheel of what's going on out there as much as, you know, if, if Malcolm makes a few more quicker decisions and isn't 
pounding the ball in place and maybe Victor can hit some shots coming off screens in addition to what he does. And he gets a little bit stronger with the ball. Even the product that they were running under Nate McMillan would have been better than what we saw. Now I expect that whoever the new coach is, you know, if it's Mike D'Antoni, they run a lot of pistol with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. If it's, if it's Vaughn, they run some horn stuff that involve guards and they, they do some thumb action where you might be faking a pistol handoff. I think that would work really good with the two of them. Like I expect that it won't be as dicey as what we just saw. If we do, if it is, then they probably need to make a change if we're being quite honest. Yeah, most definitely. I, I completely agree. Um, so my, for my one number, um, I have so many written down. I was going to, I was going to just choose one spur of the moment and I'm still trying to figure that out. So, okay. Actually. Yeah. Four. Oh, well, no, it's not four, three, one, one point four, three, one. You know what that is? I'm assuming it's a point per some possession of some type of play type. But... So that is actually Malcolm's free throw rate in the playoffs. He was generating uh, oh. one free throws per shot. at the yeah. And, uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised with that. That is great. Obviously. Um, because he did not – I believe it was – I think he had a .28 free throw rate during the regular season. So, obviously, a significant jump. Um, we, we talk a lot about how important having someone to get to the line consistently is. And, well, he still was kind of turnover prone in the bubble, obviously, you know, with defenses collapsing and everything. Did not finish well at the rim either still, but uh, when he's able to draw fouls, you can mitigate that a little bit. So, I thought that was something that stuck out to me. Um, I don't think it's sustainable. That's a really damn high free throw rate, um, at least for, you know, for his game. But that was something that certainly stuck out to me. Right. I remember in February after he came off of the concussion, his free throw attempts and his free throw accuracy, like mysteriously plummeted there for a stretch. Yeah. He missed like two free throws back to back one time. I remember looking at his, uh, month over month during that when I was writing something about his high um, time of possession and his dribble counts and uh, early in the season when he was knifing to the rim at will and racking up tons of drives, his free throw attempt rate wasn't bad. Like it wasn't going to jump off the page at you, but then it really plummeted. So yeah, definitely in that series, the longer it went by games three and four, the Pacers were doing a better job of getting Brogdon against um, preferred matchups. They were going at Hero and Duncan Robinson better than what they did in game one and two, and I think that helped because people were having to rotate over later, and he, he was doing a good job of getting all the way to the basket, but definitely a plus. Yeah, and so I actually I had a, the other number that I debated was a five, and that was for points per 100 better with Malcolm at, at shooting guard instead of point guard. And obviously tracking data can be a little bit finicky, um, but I think that just stands to reason. Also, I mean, I, I didn't know as because I wasn't as in tune with Milwaukee, but um, I think another aspect of it being important for Vic to kind of be the point guard on both sides uh, is that Malcolm really struggles against smaller guards. And I think we we learned that right away. Detroit was the first game, and Derrick Rose made – he just gave Malcolm so many problems on, on the defensive end. Right, and, and I mean uh... – I wrote this whenever I, whenever they acquired Malcolm, like I never thought that his contract was going to be prohibitive, but I didn't think that the fit was as perfect on paper as what was being brandied about. But um, Victor's mm-hmm. problem is like, I mean, even in that series late against Goran Dragic, like they were both having a very hard time and, and, and to give Goran tons of credit, he's extremely crafty, but both of them were having a hard time actually 
getting him to use the screen. He was rejecting so many picks, and even Victor was getting set and the spin cycle a couple times just at the point of attack kind of inexplicably. And I feel like if Victor's the one chasing around point guards, for one, that's going to take some of his energy reserves away. But it also limit. I mean, his strength as a defender is being a help defender and roaming the entire floor. And if he's having to chase point guards because Malcolm can't do it, and I don't disagree with you, I don't – his defensive positioning isn't great. Uh, and definitely like if you have a person like De'Aaron Fox or somebody out there, he's most likely going to get dusted pretty easily, but it's almost like they need a better solution. I mean, there were even some games where they put TJ Warren onto, you know, a Devin Booker. They yep. used TJ Warren yeah, against James Jamal Martin. Murray. They used TJ Warren against Jamal Murray. I mean, to me, that's even something that they might have to look at because I just think it limits what Victor is as a defender too much. If he's having to do that for Malcolm, but it kind of goes back to what their overall, um, some of their fit issues are so that's a good one to point out yeah most definitely and I, I actually I'm not sure if you uh if you heard the one pilot I did with Mo DeKeel but he said that as well he said that uh he was kind of surprised well not surprised he thought it was a good signing still for the Pacers to acquire Brogdon so obviously a great talent to get um and you're not normally going to bring him in just a regular free agency um but he was like okay so they have a guy who plays exactly like Victor Oladipo coming in to play next to Victor Oladipo. And I actually, you know, I thought about that. I'm like, Oh, you know, that's actually not in, entirely off. Um, but uh, just interesting to, to hear other people's perspectives on it. Um, so my one over under is 37 and that is his three point percentage for next season. Uh, well, I'd like to say that he could hit the over if if he comes in and he's healthy and maybe getting his usage percentage down a little bit, reducing his workload, maybe he can get that up, but I don't feel confident in it. Like, it, yeah. well, I'll just be uh, – no, I, I think I'm taking the under. Like, I think if he can get to – you know, if he was at about 36, 37, I bet that's probably where he's going to be. I don't know where he was. Where did you say his percentage was in the playoffs against Miami? I believe in the playoffs it was – 35 or 36%. Let me check really quick. Cause I know I mean, it's close. Yeah. It was like, meaning, solid. meaning whether I would take 30. I mean, I, I wouldn't feel bad if, if he hit 38, I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know that I would feel confident hitting the over on that. Yeah. I think the way that I'm kind of looking at it is in the ideal sense for the Pacers, he does hit that obviously, I mean, you know, better shooting is better, but I think the way that I look at it is if he shoots like, I mean, yeah. 32.6% from, from the three again, that is uh, not that it's a no-go, but it's, that's tough. I mean, you got to have better shooting from him. And I think a lot of it is, you know, just tough season injuries that, that all plays a part, but uh, yeah. I, okay. I was wrong. He shot 37 and a half percent from three on six. Yeah, I was game. thinking it was a little bit. So it was higher. Yeah. Um, so I will transition to the next person and I guess we'll just keep going in order and I'll just hit TJ Warren. Uh, my one play for TJ Warren is an easy one. I'm taking us to the Lakers game in the bubble the last 13.1 seconds. He hits a dagger three over Anthony Davis with miles Turner setting a pick and Anthony Davis is pretty close to being at the level of the screen. Like this is an aggressive drop. He's not dropped way back. He's cleared the three point line and TJ Warren drills it. Obviously, that's the biggest trend that happened for him in the bubble when he exploded the way that he did. His three-point attempts went way up. He went from taking, you know, he was taking 0.5 pull-up threes per game, and that skyrocketed. Um, Not as many in the playoffs because he wasn't doing as much on ball, and they were defending him differently. 
the Heat were than what he was obviously seeing in the playoffs. He saw more traps. They weren't switching. Jimmy was mostly sticking with him, using a show and recover, and then he would see a double if he got into an isolation that he would turn into. But um, a number that goes along with this, this isn't my one number I cheated, but just a number <laughs> to share with that play is that uh, during the regular season, before they got to Orlando, when he was playing in the fo- at the four spot with Miles Turner on the floor, no Sabonis, no TJ Leaf, no Jakar, no Goga, he was taking 20.3% of his shots as threes in those minutes. When he got to the bubble, that exploded to 33%. So that's not even just a factor of it being a spread lineup. That's just literally him making the determined decision that mm-hmm. I'm going to work really hard to extend my shooting range. And like I remember in my end-of-season piece, I had a, a play where – um, well, not I play a big, long compilation of plays where he's playing against defenses that are known as drop coverages with Carl Anthony Towns, with Jonas Valanciunas um, in OKC against New Orleans Noel. And the big is dropped clear below the free throw line. Miles Turner setting a screen in those units and TJ is dribbling in and taking a pull up mid range too. That's just a complete change in mentality and, and, obviously a great thing for the Pacers to see that and TJ did give some credit we have to bring this up he gave some credit to Nate McMillan and said that Nate McMillan told him during the hiatus hey we need you to take more threes and we can't have you thinking about missing them like if you miss one you just take the next one and obviously that paid off so we got to give um, the coach some credit for that even though obviously TJ was the person putting in the work yeah most definitely I uh that play always sticks out in my mind. And I think the other thing too, that's interesting. You know, I think normally when we look at pull up threes, we're thinking about right out of the pick and roll. I think that was huge for him too, but he has like this kind of, it's not herky jerky, but I don't know how else to put it. The kind of like step in shot that he does right off the catch. So it's like technically a pull up. Um, the tracking is actually really weird on it. When I, when I wrote a piece on it, I had to go back and just count it up manually going back through all the games because the, the tracking data on it's kind of finicky, but um yeah, he will take like one step right into it and or, or one dribble right off into it and, and pull up into it. And it was it was just kind of really striking to see it. And and when it happened and I don't think that he did it. Did he do it during the the um the games leading up to the the um the bubble games? Not, not very the- rarely because I remember I stayed up like the whole night after they played the Sixers and was looking at that data and the Pacers as a team took like Oh, I don't, I wish I had the number up. I might. Now that I say that, I think I, no, I don't. Um, But it was about four threes early in the shot clock as a team. Like, I don't even think it was quite four. And in those games, TJ took like 2.8 or three just himself. And as you say, he like would sprint, sprint ahead of the action. And then he would step into it with, Mm -hmm. you know, a guard hitting him from the other side. And, and that's something that they weren't getting. I mean, that much prior to, because he wasn't in the position to be outrunning a four. Like he wasn't, he wasn't going to be out there leaking out against a four and getting out ahead of the break. So you're not going to be doing that. I mean, Sabonis and Miles Turner aren't going to outrun their guy and sprint to the three point line and <laughs> that pull is up a funny picture. Three. So, um, my one number then, which I tossed around with this a lot, um, just as a bit of context for that thing that I just said, um, during the overall season, TJ was used as a pick and roll ball handler on 18.3% of his possessions. Those are that he used. Mm -hmm. Um, Then during the seeding game, that 
ticked all the way up to 24.6%, far more on ball. And the playoffs that went back down to 12.2 and obviously got divested. But that isn't my one number. I just wanted to throw it out there for people to know. My one number goes to his passing, which is a wider trend for the Pacers as a whole in the playoffs. But this is actually just him on the regular season. If you look at his passes, he has a very low pass to usage ratio, (laughs) a very, a, a disturbingly low pass to usage ratio. Um, if you look at the players who played at least 30 minutes per game and had a usage rate of at least 20%, the only people who passed the ball less frequently than him, well, I'll tell you, Carmelo Anthony, Boyan Bogdanovich, Evan Fournier, and RJ Barrett. TJ Warren was at 23.8 passes per game while averaging over 30 minutes and with a usage price percentage over 20%, which granted during the regular season, he was being used predominantly as a finisher. He's a scorer. But as we saw in the playoffs, when he started having, and in the bubble, when he's starting to have more of an on-ball role, he's got to be able to be a playmaker as well. Like if the Pacers see him expanding on what he did and becoming more of a top option, he's got to be able to make plays out of blitzes, potentially out of traps, out of just increasing more bodies. And in the playoffs, that number creeped up over the 30s. But, I mean, the Pacers didn't do a very good job of using advantage of that gravity when he was seeing extra defenders. But just crazy to think about because you look at that passing data from the series and Malcolm's skyrocketed. He was averaging almost 20 more passes per game because they just didn't have that connective tissue out there. He was having to create so much of the offense and keep the offense moving with their hold, swing, hold, detached, isolation offense that – I mean, I hate to put it this way because I know people are going to get mad at me, but we have to point it out. When you don't have Sabonis out there to be lubricating the offense, those passes had to go somewhere. And even Miles Turner during the series had was averaging 45 passes per game, which was almost the same as Bam and Embiid. And yet this number is absolutely absurd. It was the lowest of anyone in the playoffs. 0.5 potential assists on 45 passes per game. Like if you look at Embiid, Embiid was around that many passes and he only averaged an assist, but Embiid was averaging also six potential assists because his teammates were just missing shots. And by comparison, Bam, who's more of a playmaking big at the elbows, obviously his potential assist was at about 8.5. So Miles is at 0.5 and that tells you a lot that he's passing out of shots and that it's leading to a lot of offensive resets. And that just tells you the broader picture here that if Victor's, you know, struggling with some of his pass accuracy, that is a big weight load on Malcolm Brogdon to be carrying unless TJ Warren can be showing some development of a passer, especially if they were to build around Miles Turner with that number, some way, somehow, they have to get these five parts on the floor more connected if they're going to build with that type of a small ball lineup because 0.5 potential assists is is a low number, as is um, TJ Warren's pass to usage ratio. So, yeah, most definitely. One, I actually want to ask you a question off that real quick. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought in going back and watching the series and uh, thinking about the bubble again. Do you, would you can, like, obviously it's hard to just come into something and, and, and throw new things out on the fly. Um, but it, it really was frustrating. And you could tell how frustrating it was for Miles, too, because he's not, he, I mean, he's just not a good decision maker with the ball in his hands yet. Uh, I mean, I should say still, as it's been five years, um, which is crazy to say. But I, I mean, trying to use him in the same way that, that they use Domas and, and running so many DHOs. 
and trying to be the hub of the offense, I felt like it was just so not counterintuitive. Obviously, I'm not a coach. I'm not Nate McMillan. He has so much more experience and, and knowledge than I do. But it just felt like fighting against – not cutting your nose off to spite your face, but almost in that vein. Um, it, it just felt like maybe trying to throw new wrinkles out or trying to run things differently um, – may have made an impact that could have been better, but you could just tell how overtaxed miles was um, trying to be the guy who is, is, is kind of setting things up in the way Sabonis normally does. Right. I mean, I don't think he's not super fluid with a, with a dribble handoff. Like that's not that's really a his, kind way of putting it. <laughs> that's yeah. That's not his game. Um, I don't, I mean, we'll get into miles too, but just to say that, uh, I mean, obviously clerk back to last season, what his role was communicated as wasn't clear. Um, yeah. I'm telling him that he needed to work on his post game. I mean, I would love to be a fly on the wall of that conversation because I mean, he did need to work on his post game in the sense that if he gets a switch, he has to be able to do something with that. So if, if the powers that be were telling him that I can understand where it's coming from, but that did not need to be the core of what he worked on last year. I mean, they all knew that Sabonis was going to be a starter. So I don't know how it got lost in translation of telling miles like, Hey, we're going to need you to spread to the corner. We need you to be cutting up from the dunker spot. And we're going to be using you to put pressure on opposing fours while Sabonis is rolling. And we're going to be making use of both of you. So be ready to shoot in those types of positions, know where to cut in these spots. But I mean, like you said, why, why do you need to start a game somewhat in the bubble where you're running the exact play that they run for Sabonis to get a post touch out of flex and running it for miles to get a post touch against a big, like I, I, I personally don't need to see that. And it kind of felt like, I mean, like you said, they had to do some of this on the fly and you're asking people that were used to running handoffs for most of the year and, and running elbow action of like, Hey, we all need to relearn what we're doing. But I mean, somewhat of it, like I said, that 0.5 potential assist number comes somewhat from miles um, self-checking. And mm-hmm. I don't know what the source of that is, but I mean, like we said, um, just to wrap up TJ, it was just me pointing out that I would like to see, I mean, we've gotten so much growth out of him this year. It almost feels selfish to ask for more but yeah. i think that his next avenue is if he's going to have more on ball possessions which i think the pacers would benefit from running more pick and roll combinations whether it's four or five or whatever it may be i did have a number that was in well no i won't share that one right now but he needs to be able to make plays for other people too so hopefully he can work on that and we can see even more development out of tj but I, I mean, we already started talking about Miles, so we might as well flow into Miles because I know what that's your, your other person. What's your over-under on TJ, though? Oh, I almost – geez, what am I doing? I know, over, I got under, too invested in Miles. My over-under on TJ is threes per game. I set it at six. Ooh. Because he was at – just for context, he had 3.4 during the regular season. He was at seven in the bubble, and in the playoffs that went to 4.8. So I put it at six. I think and I think that the Pacers are going to be after a coach that increases the three-point attempt. So that's where I was getting that at. Oh, man, this is good. Uh, I think if TJ – I'm going to cop out. If TJ is playing the four, then I'm going to say over. If TJ is not playing the four, then I think I would take the under, yeah. which sounds counterintuitive. But I think, you know, in terms of just how he was running, I, don't, I feel like he's running less pick and rolls if he's playing against smaller, longer guys. Um, I could be wrong in that, but. Um, well, yeah. And like we said, I think 
I think you're probably hitting the nail on the head there because he would, I think he'll run more pick and rolls. You'll be putting a four in the position to fight over the yeah. ball screen. And I think you'd get more in transition. Um, if he's back at the three, I think it would probably be, I mean, I don't think it's going to be as steep a reduction as 3.4 that we saw in the regular yeah. season under a new coach, but I, I would probably lean toward the under as well. On to miles. I hope he hits. If he shoots over six threes a game, that'll be perfect. Oh my God. I can't even, I'm just imagining it right now. This is great. Why can't the season already be here? Um, so with miles, my one play, uh, which actually feeds into a game. So my one play is a play that we have talked about multiple times, the role replace against the Portland trailblazers that iced the game in February. Um, miles hits the, the late three, um, after finally executing a role, a role replace that, that was put in, Finally, like it just seemed like out of it was about time, right? And uh, it, completely late shot clock, right over Carmelo Anthony. I mean, no, not over Carmelo Anthony. I'm talking earlier in the game. Actually, there's a three that he takes right before halftime. It was like kind of a uh, like a shimmy fade three right over Carmelo Anthony late in the shot clock um, to tie it up at 60 right before the half. And I think I look at this game. Miles takes six threes. He has 10 rebounds, and it's actually – it's not my number, but a really funny thing that happened with Miles, his defensive rebounding percentage, I looked at trends on cleaning the glass when trying to find a number for him, and, and um, something that really stuck out to me is he, his defensive rebounding percentage in December through January or in, like, early February, so, like, right after Vic got back, his, he had one of the worst defensive rebounding percentages of any big in the NBA. And then from, uh, you know, from like early February until uh, prior to the bubble, he had almost back to a league average defensive rebounding percentage, which for him is good considering he's not a great uh, rebounder on the defensive glass. Um, but just for me, this play and this game encapsulated my perfect vision for Miles Turner, a guy who uh, I think he scored once off of a pump and go. Uh, again, like I said, he took six threes. Hit two blocks and obviously blocks on everything, but I'm, I mean, that's part of his game. Um, and he just that, that was the time where I felt like there was like an eight game stretch where it felt like Miles had figured out his role and what he was doing on the team. And it would, he just felt good and where, and where he was at, felt confident. He was really attacking the glass. And that's just that hadn't been the case for him the entire season leading up to that. Um, so that play and that game really sticks out for me. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and that wasn't even like a full role replace. Like he was basically just like popping out as yeah. Sabonis role, but it was perfect because it was putting tension. Like I said, you're stressing the tagger to have to make a choice between the two people. And some of that goes back to what we saw in the heat series. It's about how much do like, if we're using miles, even just thinking about, you know, your center in this, um, off ball complimentary role is how much do the defenders respect you when you aren't the shooter? Yes. And by having him pop out that way, you're you're the motion is making the defender think twice about what they're doing. When they were having him at the slot or in the corner against the Heat, they were doing nothing to Bam did not care. Like he did not care that Miles was standing out there. The Heat were perfectly content with, you know, if, if that guy beats us from 3, that's what's going to happen. They were pinching all the way to the nail. They were coming all the way off of the corner. And that's not creating like I don't think that what Miles's three-point percentage was on his three-point attempts last year. Like, if you were just thinking outside the box and being like, you know, we want this team to have a stretch for, I don't think that's what you would think of as like, 
oh, that guy's really going to spread and open up the floor if you just looked at his number from last year. As it's not like, you know, by comparison, like I think, you know, a chalk outline that you would look to is probably Perzingis in terms of offensive mm-hmm. role. And Perzingis was at eight threes per 36 minutes last year, and Miles was at 4.9. And some of that, that's a function of the offense. But Perzingis is also taking, he also took like um, 35 threes from 30 feet out. Miles didn't take any from that depth. So you're not really stretching the defense those few extra feet either. So that makes it even more important that Nate McMillan and the coaching staff should have been incorporating more ways to have him like whether, you know, if he's the five that they build around next year, or if he's still playing with Turner, I mean, besides Sabonis, excuse me, um, having that motion makes the defender be more honest there. And, you know, if he is a five, that's going to be drawing the rim protector out, then obviously, that too but even in that sense the heat were more content to kind of hang back they didn't pop him a lot but yeah I agree with you that that stretch right there when he made that play for one it was at the end of the game and they were both playing together which was an important development because the Pacers needed to get more if you're going to be paying these guys almost 20 million each like you want those two people to be able to be on the court together at the end of a game and be able to function well together at the end of the game so that was definitely an an iconic moment to be looking at yeah definitely and I think, you know, I, one, one thing I do want to hit on, because, you know, I think there's a lot to unpack with Miles and his game, especially with everything that, you know, kind of seems to be coming up this offseason. Um, you know, how much do you think of it was coaching and then also looking at the record scratches and him being indecisive? I mean, I think a lot of it feeds into each other almost. You know, he, he – I, I – not that I think Miles isn't a confident person, but I think he just was not confident in his role, and that was clear. And I think you put part of that on the coaching staff, no doubt. Um, but I think a lot of it I, – I, I never want to, like, just keep everything on a player, but I do think we have to also, you know, say, hey, you know, this isn't just Nate on and not putting in the great system. I think part of it is, is Miles is just still not quite there in terms of, um, you know, being willing to take that quick shot or – knowing whether or not he should. Well, absolutely. I think there's, there's a good example of that. They're playing the Mavericks and he's up top. And I don't, I mean, it was a smaller player. I don't remember that because the Mavericks were switching and he has space. Like it would have been a, a, the defender's closing, but he can easily shoot over the top. And again, like you say, it's a record scratch. It's a self-check moment. He immediately put the ball on the floor and dribbled to the nearest guard which was TJ McConnell in the corner and then basically threw TJ McConnell a grenade where he's the one who then has to shoot. Like you have such a high release point. He's got to be all comfortable letting the ball fly in those moments. There was also games against Utah this year where, you know, if you're at solo five and you have the opportunity, the whole reason you want a modern five like miles in that matchup is to pull Rudy Gobert away from the rim. And a lot of times teams are kind of willing to give that up. But if he hits a couple, then you as a defender are thinking twice of, hey, I need to close out to that guy. And he passed out. I had screenshots of it. He passed out of like four or five threes in that game where, again, you don't know. Like, is this a confidence issue or is – I can't imagine. Like, I just can't imagine that Nate McMillan is looking at him and being like, oh, yeah, we don't want you to shoot those shots. I mean, if that's something that Nate McMillan was telling Miles Turner, then it was definitely the right choice to move on because that's just – inexcusable like a hundred percent inexcusable but a lot of everything with miles i feel like goes back to feel um even in that heat series if 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 tj warren has the ball on the wing and is getting in isolation the way the heat were defending that was bringing bam across the lane to be a goalie they were using bam as a goalie if miles has tyler hero 
standing in front of him to zone that up, Miles has to know, I have to immediately get in front of this guy because I'm going to have an easy dunk. And it between that and not switching ahead of the switches, that it took him until game four to figure that type of stuff out. And like, that's not a thing that's, you know, Nate McMillan. I mean, Nate McMillan can show it to him on film, but he has to know in the moment, hey, our team is going to be better off in this situation if I'm going to be used as the screener. That when Bam is this far away from the basket, if I dart to the rim, we're going to have an easier shot than my teammate continually having to dribble into a brick wall. And sometimes that feel just isn't, isn't quite there for him. And, you know, maybe that will come. Maybe it won't. Um, I do think he showed some development there in terms of he got better at what you just said, putting the ball on the floor, his volume of shots off of two dribble moves wasn't much higher, but that went from 46% to 56%. Um, he started drawing fouls a little bit more, toward the back end of the season than he was at the beginning for about a two month stretch. And he did get better. Like we said in the past that he at least was against the switch. He'd be willing to go and establish position and at least turn and shoot over the top. But you look at it and you just know that um, if he's the five that they're going to build around that they, they need to find some type of playmaking and connective tissue somewhere else, because um, he was one of the other two in addition to Victor that I mentioned earlier. Miles finished that series with more turnovers than assists. And obviously the point five mark there goes back to all the things that we said, the self-checking, the, you know, not quite knowing what decision to make when he gets the ball, that it's not super quick. But then you can also look and see that he had a lot of really good defensive moments, but you bring up the defensive rebounding percentage. The Pacers did have in the bubble, they had the worst defensive rebounding rate and the worst opponent offensive rebounding rate of any team in the bubble. And that includes the small ball rockets. So another thing that they're going to have to address if he's the five, what type of four they're going to get in there. That's going to cover all three of those types of things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so getting into the one number, I'm again, torn between multiple, um, I think, you know, I'll let the second one feed into the first one. Okay, so the first one I look at is 11.6, and that is across 129 possessions uh, when Brogdon, Victor, Justin Holiday, TJ, and Miles all played together, they were plus 11.6 points per 100, and that's that's from just the playoffs. And so I, I actually know that – no, yeah, that is from the playoffs. I, I forgot to have that written down. Um, but – I think in, in looking at that Miami series and how well that group actually played, considering how the series went, um, that speaks a lot to me. And obviously, you know, I think that I'm not trying to make a decision one way or another for anybody in terms of um, who you would have sticking around necessarily for next year. But I look at that and I think that is just intriguing, especially in how they played together. Um, considering they didn't even play that well together, it's pretty damn good mark to, to put that up. Um, obviously not an immense sample size. Uh, and then the second number that I thought was ridiculous, like I had no idea it was this high. Miles on the season drew fouls on 50% of his post-ups. And I, that's in like the top 5% in the league. And so I, to me, that was like one of the craziest stats that I could find um, in regards to this. Obviously, he doesn't have a beautiful post-up game or anything. I think it's like 0.9.96. Uh, points per possession off post-ups, which is like fine, but it's not something you want to run your offense through. Um, but that also just speaks out to looking at the Heat series and how frustrating it was seeing him wide open in the post on Goran Dragic or Duncan Robinson, 
or Tyler Hero and not getting the ball. But yeah, alas, I'll, I'll, I'll see. Yeah, um, the post up one. I mean, he he did a good job just by simplifying what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Like a year ago, you had noticed a lot of the time that sometimes you would make a move before he felt the defense, like he would rush it a little bit. Yeah. And I think that there was more t- times this year where he was patient before he went into that. Obviously, like you said, it's not a, a huge sample because he's not a big post-up guy, but it is important in the sense that I I think that it's valid that you need to be able to have variety in, in a playoff series and be able to, if you get a switch, be able to do something there. And that wasn't um, – the Pacers didn't go to that a lot, but – um, that speaks to another area that he did get better this season, even though his like raw box score numbers don't show that he showed a lot of development. I do think there was some small ways where he improved. Um, what do you have for the over-under? For the over-under, I have 0.5 because I finally, you know, after our first pot, I learned how to uh, how to do over-under. <laughs> um, it took me a minute. I, that was one of my favorite comments we got back on it. Uh, best part of the pot is when Mark didn't know what an over-under was. I know now. So 0.5, and that is games in a Pacers uniform next season. Oh, I'm taking the over. Oh, you're taking the over. I think I'm going to take the over because um, I think that I could kind of see the Pacers considering of this might look different under a new coach. Like we don't know who that coaching hire is going to be yet. And I, you know, they kind of wanted to point out a lot that our projected starting lineup only played 86 minutes this year. And there wasn't a lot of time for those guys to develop. And I just, I kind of wonder if they'll kick the can down the road on making a choice with the two bigs a little bit longer until they can see what it looks like under uh, a new regime, shall we say Um, that could change. You never know what happens around the draft time. Maybe there's somebody they really like higher up on the draft board where they're like, Hey, if, if we, you know, move one of these two bigs, we might get a pick and there's, there's somebody we really like, or maybe there's some player who suddenly becomes available that they didn't know was going to be out there and, and they don't want to miss on the opportunity. I think that they'll definitely probably be gauging what the value is out there. And I, and I personally think that there's going to be a limited ceiling um, between continuing to play them both together at the same time. I think that another coach could implement, I think there's more offensively that you could do with both of them that would get a little bit more out of them than what we saw last year. But um, it's kind of harder to evaluate that either or because you don't know what type of player they would be getting back for either one of them. But I kind of think that they will look at what it looks like when, when the new hire is here, depending upon who that new hire is. Wow. Okay. So I think I will take the over. I, I'm taking the under and I think maybe that's more optimism. And I do want to preface first by saying, I don't wish either guy to get traded. I just want them both to be happy because they're both great dudes and they both really enjoy Indiana. Um, But I do think the way that I look at it, I just, I, I, I think firing Nate was justified with everything that's come out now since. Um, But at the same time, I look at it too. And, and just the way that the Pacers have played and seeing I feel like there's almost a, not to, you know, try and put a death knell on it, but I feel like there's enough data to know that this has not worked at the highest level. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't want to say I'd be dis- disappointed if we come back with the, you know, mostly the exact same roster um, next season with just a different coach. But I, I, I don't know. I would personally, I, in terms of how fans would react to that, um, just knowing from the mentions we get on Indy Cornrows, um, 
I, I don't know how well that would be received. And I, I know the front office probably isn't as worried about that. Um, no, they can't be. Yeah. I mean, they have to make whatever decision they think is best. I mean, I, I lean towards you. I think that um, the data that we've seen, I think that they do hold each other back in certain respects. And like I said, there's creative things that you can do there that can work to an extent that I think teams could eventually scheme around to some regard. But I, I think that the on-court product could be a little bit better, but I think you are limiting yourself. I think it was interesting when Kevin Pritchard gave his end-of-season press conference because in one moment – with regard to the coaching hire, he said, you know, he used the illusion of the hockey puck and he said, you don't want to, we want to look at where the hockey puck is going, not where it is right now. Like in mm-hmm. terms of thinking out of the box. But then later on when he was talking about the two big lineup, he hedged his bets and was like, you know, there are a variety of different teams playing in the playoffs right now. And, and we kind of want to see, you know, how some of that is. I'm like, I don't really know that you can necessarily base it on that. I mean, I think that, um, there's certainly some chalk outlines of teams that are left that are closer to what the Pacers could be than others. But I think for the most part, you look at the talent that you have and you try to get the most out of that and whatever you're going to build around, whether that's, you know, it's a bonus around more of what we're seeing with the um, pulling a big 20 feet from the basket and using cutters and using motion and knowing where to move when the ball moves or whether you're, you know, trying to play, with miles as a rim protector and with shooters and and greater playmaking and rebounding out there. I think you make a decision just based on what you're evaluating your own talent, not on whether, you know, the Boston Celtics knock off the Miami heat. Like I I don't, you know, I I just think that as a small market, you have, you really can't make that type of a choice, but I I felt a little bit contradictory for him to be at one point, like, well, we want to be, what the next new trend's going to be with our coaching hire. But at the same time, we're going to base our roster potentially around what type of teams have playoff <laughs> success right now. Like you really can't do that because none of these players are direct comparables to what the four teams that are left are. I mean, like I said, you can use a rough chalk outline in certain instances, but anyways, moving no, on to, did you oh, hit the yeah. over under? Oh yeah, we, oh, did. Yeah, we did. I did. But I did want to say one last thing on that. If, if you don't mind, I, no, uh, go ahead. I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's it's I'm split down the middle in some ways because I think uh, when I when I, uh, you know, I'm talking to multiple people, like talking to coaches and, and some of the former players that I've talked to as well. I mean, like the, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about Golden State and the way that teams tried to copycat them. And and then when it doesn't work, you're surprised. And I think what what always I come back to is you have to find the next thing and find what works for you. And I think you do have to an extent look at, I mean, I think Boston is going to be around for the next three or four years for sure. Um, and I do think playing as we've seen the two big lineup against Boston is uh, troublesome sure. to say the least on the perimeter. Um, but you, I mean, you look at what you have and you're like, okay, well, we, we're not going to attract the same guys to be the, even Houston 2.0. I think the, I, I don't know what your thoughts were when, when you saw, uh, and this is not a knock on Victor, but he's just such a different player from James Harden. Like, see, yeah, no, he's not James Harden like, 2.0. That's, that's just like, I, I was like, I went through the ringer on that one. I was like, what on earth are we talking about here? Um, but I think this team has to find a way to play that is unique to the market and, and the roster and not to try and be like anyone else. So just going off your point with that. So, yeah, we'll head into Sabonis. My uh, one play is something I wrote about a little bit earlier this year and goes back to, because we don't have any sample size of what Sabonis was in the playoffs last year. It connects to last year's playoffs 
and gets brought up fairly frequently. So during the hiatus, I wrote an article about um, the Pacers needing to do a better job of scheming around exaggerated game plans in the playoffs. And this play occurred, I'm taking you to Chicago. If I can, sorry, my video is not pulling up. Uh, No worries. But... Da, 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 da. Sorry, you're going to have to edit out my pause. Uh, don't worry about it. It's cool. Where is it? Oh, okay. So we're in Chicago, and Thaddeus Young obviously knows Sabonis pretty darn well. They played against each other a lot in practices, I'm sure, training mm-hmm. camp or teammates. Um, they're Sabonis, they enter the ball to Sabonis in the post. That is guarding him. And Sabonis typically, when somebody tries to take away his strong hand on the right block, will do one of two things. Sometimes he's too strong for his opponent and he still gets back to his strong using a flying hook. But a lot of times he will use a reverse dribble and go baseline. Thad took away his ability to turn middle and immediately jumped to that reverse dribble and ended up stealing the ball. Mm -hmm. And here's my point in saying this. Like, I think we've all kind of beat the dead horse on the fact that uh, Sabonis needs to become more ambidextrous. It would help with his dexterity and a lot of issues if he was more willing to go to his right, though I would counter that, like, unlike Embiid, um, Embiid posts on, like, 30% of his possessions, and Sabonis last year only posted on, like, 10%. Like, he gets used in the pick-and-roll more than a post player. But here's my point in bringing out this play. This also happened against Boston, where they schemed for him turning over uh, to get back to his left hand from the right block. And here's my problem with it, which this connects – here I said that we shouldn't necessarily be – comparing other players but this connects directly to what we're seeing in the Lakers series and some of what's going on with Denver on occasion the Pacers on this possession against the Bulls as Sabonis is on this island with Thad have four offensive players on the weak side like Victor is not standing there he's trying to clear out Digger so he's gone to the other side along with Justin Holiday, Aaron and then Miles is kind of standing in the short corner And that just really annoys me. Like, I'm going to have to go on a rant here because they did the same. Like, I can literally show you both of these plays. The same exact thing with Boston. Al Horford and Gordon Hayward are taking away his ability to turn and go middle. And they have all four other players on the other side of the floor. That is making it so easy for three defenders to guard four people in both instances. And you have this guy. Like, the Pacers scored 1.317 points per possession on – Sabonis' passes out of the post. Like, you have this player, that would be their most efficient play type of any play type that they have, is getting open threes and open cut out of his passing. So, why they would get so stagnant and not be running more split cuts, more types of action, and this is what you're seeing with Denver on occasion in game two. They were putting four people on the opposite side of the floor when Jokic would get a switch, and it's like they corrected it in the second half of game two, and then in game three, they did a lot more of it that you want this person to get doubled. Like that should be your goal. You don't really want to necessarily remove the digger unless you're going to run another play on the opposite side of the floor. You want to take advantage of their IQ and their ability to hit those spots. So that's just my pet peeve that like, yes, the Pacers in general do not do it. The last, you know, two, three, four seasons have not done a good enough job of knowing like, yeah, that is a weakness for my player. And this team has scouted it. And now they're doing an exaggerated defense. But how can we get the most out of what other skills this person has? And you know Sabonis is a great passer. So don't be making it easy for four defenders to guard three people while they stand and watch him. And that is the end of my long rant. Yeah, no, it's uh, so looking at Sabonis, it's really interesting to me. And I, I think 
kind of going off of what we're talking about with Miles a little bit, I I look a lot at you know especially looking at Denver. You know, uh, Jokic obviously is is a step probably two or three steps above Domas as a passer, and that's not a a detriment to him. I mean, Domas is still an incredible passer, but Jokic is just, I tweeted this the other day, actually. I think we need to stop talking about Jokic as the greatest passing big man of all time and just say one of the greatest passers of all time. Um, but I look at the way that Denver plays and, and how they work to get him, A, to get, uh, you know, Jokic into his spots and B, to, to just keep moving off ball and get him open cuts and, and make his reads easier. And I think I look at that a lot with, with Domas and the way that the team doesn't move at all. And I, you know, a large of that's Nate's offense, but I think that's something I'm interested to see uh, kind of evolve uh, with the next coach, hopefully, and, and, and how things might open up for him and, and where the offense could be headed around him. Right. And I think that almost the better, as I use my same illusion again, almost the better chalk outline there in terms of movement, because like I said, Denver was having that problem in game two, but like, I don't think there's a team that I've watched. I mean, Miami and Denver are pretty close to being towards the top of the league and cut frequency, but I don't think there's a team that I've watched outside of Miami. That's better at knowing where to move when the ball moves, they slide up and down the three point line extremely well. And that, you know, if, if they're running pick and roll or for the roll man, they get into that, that player's line of sight in a way that the Pacers did not last year. They move really well around Bam at the elbows when he's pulled out. They run so many great elbow plays, so many good ones. And that was that's part of the reason why I wrote the piece about Dan Craig, not because somebody who is an assistant automatically, you know, that doesn't necessarily make them a great coach just because they're from that coaching tree. Yeah. But the one thing that he has there is he is watching the exact type of sets that they're running you know, not just when, you know, Bam's in the post or like ignore the fact that Bam's a more explosive athlete than Sabonis and just look at the ones that they're running with him just stationary at the elbow or when they're running handoffs. And those are more multi-layered actions than what the Pacers are running in the same instances where I feel like they could be getting even more out of that, which leads into my one number, which I went back and forth on a lot of different things that we could use, but this is just something that's interesting to me. So it is the number three, and that's the number of possessions that the Pacers use Sabonis as the ball handler in pick and roll. And there's probably going to be some listeners that are like, you know, what are you talking about, crazy lady? But I'm interested. <laughs> and this is why I'm this is why I am very interested by this. I think that the Pacers in general could benefit from having more pick and roll combinations. Against the Heat, Brogdon ran 41 of his 108 pick and rolls at Bam Adebayo. Which now reverse those roles and imagine if Brogdon is screening and and you're getting to put Bam as the having to fight over the top of a screen or even don't even just use Bam. Like more and more teams are doing this and it isn't just the people that you would think of. Like obviously Murray and Jokic run a ton of inverse pick and roll, but Steven Adams and OKC with Chris Paul, they ran possessions of inverse pick and roll. Carl Anthony Towns did this. Um, a really good example of a play that I love out of Memphis is um, – Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark, that's a 4-5 on ball. Jaron Jackson Jr. will be used as the ball handler. And you're not even just – it's not about dribbling. It's just the fact that they're screening for him with the ball. So they'll have Jaron Jackson Jr. at the elbow, and uh, Brandon Clark will go into a dribble handoff and then pitch it to Jaron Jackson Jr., who he then sets a screen for. And it's an opportunity for Brandon Clark to make a quick slip or to pop out to three 
with him at the elbow and you're putting so much stress on defenders to be able to cover both of those things. And I feel like that's something that Sabonis could do. And this is a, if you were looking at where the hockey puck is going, teams aren't running a ton of this with centers, but there's a lot of other teams outside of the Pacers who are doing this. And I know Sabonis mentioned that he wanted to work on being able to put the ball on the floor. And I know that his dad commented on this too, that if you can do that, then you're going to be drawing defenders to you and that's going to open your passing game up even more. And that's just another way where I think that the Pacers could be capitalizing on that. It's not so much like, I think sometimes we think about, uh, could the Pacers win with Sabonis as their best player? And I, I don't look at it in that way as much as I want that guy out there as a connector for everything else that yeah. they're doing. And they could be running a, a Sabonis centric offense. That's better than the one that we saw last year, even when he was getting force fed as many touches as he, as he was in the absence of Victor, there's more stuff that they haven't barely scratched the surface on that for a high IQ playmaker. And like you said, I'm not going to pretend he's not going to be a guy like Jokic that stands out of the elbow and can make some crazy space bending pass clear to the opposite corner. Like I'm not expecting that from Sabonis, but he is capable of passing people open and he is capable of occasion when he is in the short role of making a no look pass from the slot or to the corner and tapping into more of that to, to get at its full level and three possessions. Like I can't even tell you when those three possessions of him being used as the ball handler would have been. And you would think that that's something I just don't think it helped them in that heat series when all year long, whether it was Sabonis or Miles, pretty much all they run is one five pick and roll. They have a very point guard dominant high possession time for that guy with predominantly the center as the screener and running rolls that way, whether it's guard to guard or the big as the ball handler, they just didn't have a lot of extra things to go to that were already in their bag when they went to the heat and having bam on the ball wasn't working for them to get the other things. So that's my number, something I might write about later down the road when we get through the offset. I mean, I guess if they trade Sabonis, I won't be writing about it. But <laughs> if, if, if they keep him, then that's something that I'm very intrigued with. I, I'm a sucker for inverse pick and roll, so I'd like to see that. I would really like to see that too. Just anything creative, uh, you know, I think – and not to just totally besmirch Nate, but I think that's – you look at a guy like Sabonis, and I love that you said connective tissue because – I kind of learned a lot more about that this season and and looking at some guys who um, the way it's not even that he he, obviously his assist rate and and his assist numbers went up because of how much he was doing with the ball in his hands this year. But I think that it's just the the sheer touches that he has and what he does with them and getting other guys to where they should be, you know, and I think just the bench play of the bubble is so indicative of that. You know, I think, um, I was, I'm working on it for a piece right now. And I'm, I was like, just trying to think about, okay, well, why, why is the bench so good? And why are they able to play TJ McConnell, but still shoot so well? I think so much of it is just because of the sheer ability of Domas to, to work TJ McConnell into, into his, his roles, especially with his, his, uh, his ability to screen. I mean, I think that is almost what the Pacers missed the most during the bubble. Just, I mean, Domas is one of the best screen setters in the NBA, but also, I mean, it goes without saying by far the best screener on the roster. And if maybe like there's like a screener and a half or a screener and three quarters on the roster, including Miles and Goga. Um, so I think yeah, just in terms of like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in ter- talking about connected tissues, just like the little touch passes and like the, just like the little small things that he does in terms of screening in the right way or having the ball in, in the right 
uh, handoff area and just the way that he's able to kind of orchestrate things without even necessarily touching the ball is what makes him that kind of connected to shoot the offense. Sure. I mean, there's a play that they ran a lot this season. It's a dribble handoff. It's basically like their show series where they're running it and the first person goes over the handoff. Sabonis fakes it to that person and then he ends up handing it to the second guy. Like they're not going to run that with Miles or Goga right now. I think um, Goga has some passing potential, but like that play just went away. Like they're not going to use it anymore. And the screening it's not just because Sabonis is like this bone crushing screener. It goes back to, I mean, the, my piece that I always keep pinned that I got to, <laughs> that got commissioned to do a freelance. It's, it's, it's knowing, you know, okay, the defense is icing. I need to change the angle on this into a step yeah. up. It's, it's being able to go from a dribble handoff directly into a screen as if you're, you know, standing on a hoverboard. That's how smooth it is. And while I know screen assists are, are a hinky stat, just like regular assists are, I mean, some of that's how much you're possessing the ball and how same with a screen assist. It's how often you're going to get to be used as a screener. And obviously Sabonis had the opportunity to set a lot of screens, but that was, for a good reason. One thing that I do want to throw out here, though, that it isn't my one number, but I do think it's worth talking about because we didn't touch much on Miles Turner's defense or Sabonis's mm-hmm. during this conversation. And obviously, like, I think it's worth bringing up with Miles that, like, Miles is a really good pick and roll defender. Like, you can always oh, so good. You can use him adaptably at a lot of different levels. Like, I think sometimes the Pacers probably. We talk about things they could have experimented with Sabonis. I think that Miles can play at the level or sometimes even above the level more than what they did last year because they're more um, keen on a overall drop scheme, which obviously he can execute that too. But it was interesting because I was digging into it and this is no knock on Miles. Like I don't want people to take it that way because you can literally watch with your own two eyes and see that this guy is a definite um, – he dissuades shots at the rim, like his anti-gravity. You're not even going to take a shot a lot of times when miles is there because he, he rejects those um, attempts, but they did give up 110 points per 100 when miles was on the floor in the bubble, which was not a great mark, which I think somewhat goes back to the rebounding and also some of his struggles defending his own position. And, and the fact that he was dealing with foul trouble, obviously you're not going to be as aggressive around the rim in some of those games when he was picking up early fouls. But um, I did pull this stat off of PBP stats. And the reason I used it this way, like don't get mad at me, people who don't (laughs) want us to compare miles and Sabonis. The only reason that I filtered it this way was because there's not a really good way to evaluate Sabonis as a defender. Because if you just look at Sabonis's odd number, then he's benefiting from miles. Like, because he's playing with Miles behind him as a rim protector in a lot of his minutes. And if you just pick Sabonis on and Miles off, well, then Sabonis is benefiting from the fact that he's playing a lot of minutes against bench players. So I wanted to see, like, what could you expect from a defense if Sabonis is your main guy, like in a, in a scenario where they did, like with your over-under with Miles, if they did decide this offseason that they were going to, trade miles somewhere else. So I filtered it in games that miles Turner did not play since they've acquired Sabonis, which is about a thousand minutes over the last three seasons since Sabonis came over. Mm -hmm. And overall they're, they're plus 7.49 per 100 in those 965 minutes. And their defensive reading is 105. Like that's, that's a good mark. Like you don't feel bad about 105 defensive rating and that's 
that's with Sabonis as your starting five. And I'm not going to take away that I like, I'm not going to pretend on this podcast that Sabonis is a better pick and roll defender than miles. But I do think that there's ways that you can cover up what some of his weaknesses are, whether that's whoever they get in a trade, you can play. I think you could look at playing Sabonis higher. You could look at trapping the ball and executing that type of scheme and using length to cover up what holes um, come from the corners in those situations. But the number out of the defense is, let me see here. So when Miles is on the floor in that same scenario in games that Sabonis didn't play, opponents only took 29% of their shots at the rim and shot 61% at the rim. And in the same scenario for a reverse scenario, rather with Sabonis, they attempted 35% of their shots at the rim and shot 62%. So there's what I was getting at earlier. There's, they're taking more shots at the rim because he isn't as much of a deterrent, but that number of, of the percentage that they're converting isn't terrible. And all the overall 105, you don't feel too terrible about. Like sometimes I think like there'll be replies that like Sabonis can't defend. I'm like, we don't need to compare it. Like this is not Enos Cantor. Like Sabonis doesn't have the problems defending in space of a person like that. He's generally in the right spot. He's just, he does not have the closing speed of miles to get back to the basket. And he doesn't uh, have the wingspan of miles to defend in the same respect, but you do other things from a system standpoint to mask some of that. And, and it goes back to, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Dan Burke and his assistant role. They did, they were willing to make some adjustments this year. They did do a little bit more hedging with Sabonis and miles toward the back end than what they were to cover for the fact of what we said earlier with Brogdon on ball. But um, yeah, 7.49 in net rating in those 960 minutes. And they were 19 and 12 in those games, which Obviously, that's not a full season. You're not knowing exactly what. Like this year, it was a little bit easier of a schedule when Miles was out. But in the prior two years, they played some good opponents. So just a number to think about there. Um, that was not my over-under. I thought it was important to talk about the defense. But So no, my over-under, my over-under like yours with Miles is um, 0.5. And that is, but you're going to have fun with this one, <laughs> is all-star appearances next year. Oh, wow. Do you want me to put my Nate Duncan hat on or should I just <laughs> come on right now? Um, I, you know, that's a great question. I think this is a good one to break down. This is a great one. Wow. Um, I think it depends. Okay. Is, are we, are we playing? Okay. No, I can't do hypotheticals. Let's do, I think, I think. Do you want to know? Let me help yeah. you out a little bit okay. and tell you who was the front court uh, all-stars last year. And then some people that might, be on the bubble to make it. So last year, the starters in the front court were Embiid, Siakam, and Giannis. And off the bench for reserves, we had Bam, Chris Middleton. I don't know what Ben Simmons counted as, but we'll throw him in as a front court player here. And I don't know. I'm assuming that Jason Tatum was listed as a forward. I'm assuming people didn't get tricky there. Um, Then just the other people that made it was Jimmy Butler Kyle Lowry, Trey Young, and Kemba, because, I mean, two of them were starters, but two of them would have been, we don't know how it was counted, if it was wild card or not. So basically what I think we're looking at there is Siakam's stock is a little bit down, I think, mm-hmm. after yeah. after the playoffs. Um, Chris Probably too far down. Yeah, yeah, Chris Middleton had an amazing season last year, so there might be a little bit of regression there. 
I mean, Sabonis made it with them, but I think the big person that's hanging out there that will bump somebody off of the all-star roster if he looks anything like himself is Kevin Durant. Yeah. So Kevin Durant's out there. Obviously there was a lot of noise that Bradley Beal didn't make it. And then just on the own roster, like, I mean, I think the Pacers, whether they're going to keep him on their roster or are going to be assessing the trade market for him, you would hope that Victor would somewhat insert himself back into this conversation. So who do you think would get knocked off if Kevin Durant is back to being Kevin Durant? Oh, man. <laughs> if, we're looking, if we're looking at Embiid, Siakam, Giannis, Middleton, Simmons, Tatum, and Sabonis, one of those people wouldn't make it. I unfortunately feel like it would be Sabonis. But, see, I don't know, because I think if you think of it in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to write something on this, but I, if, if you have Sabonis as the central guy and you're not worrying about Miles there just as a hypothetical and supposedly the offense maybe runs faster um, and he's getting more opportunities with a more spaced out floor, you, I mean, just by that, his numbers would probably go up. Maybe he makes more tweaks to his game, uh, becomes a slightly better defender, which I don't know how in the realm that is. Um, I mean, he could obviously improve positionally and stuff. But um, that's tough because if you think about it, I mean, I think unless somebody moves out or Domas doesn't become an all-star like immediately, um, it's tough to see that happening. I don't want to like – again, that's not talking down on him, but that's just talking about how good the guys ahead of him are. Like Siakam is probably going to be an all-star for years, which I, I don't know if he was an all-NBA second-team second guy this year. Um, I thought that was a little bit high. but um, I thought he was fairly rough in that playoff series against Boston. Oh, and there were, there were reasons rough. for that, but I feel like his stock has taken a hit. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, but I do think – I mean, I think he showed enough that he's going to be this kind of guy moving forward. I don't know what it will be exactly like um, – but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I would take the over, though. Um, why? What are your thoughts on it? I'd like to hear yours. Well, on the one hand, with the Victor situation is, and Brad Stevens talked about this with the Heat offense and Bam, Bam doesn't average as many touches as and passes as Sabonis and Jokic did last year because they also run pick and roll a lot with Jimmy and Goran. And if Victor's back, I could see that becoming more of a focal point along with what you could do with Sabonis in the high post or at the elbows. But I think I would lean the over that he's going to make it because I don't know if Chris Middleton's going to shoot to that extent again, but also yeah. like, um, like, I mean, his shot chart was literally almost entirely green. Like, I just don't know if you repeat on that two years in a row. Um, but we also don't know what's going to happen with some of these teams. Like the stuff that's emanating out of the Sixers right now, like are <laughs> yes. Embiid and Simmons both on this team. So one of them may not be in that spot. Um, I don't know if they, they bring both of them back. I mean, that team's basically making decisions without a settled front office and, and telling teams that they might be willing to move one if they get D'Antoni and that they think that D'Antoni is going to help them get James Harden. And that just sounds Really messy to me, but that yeah, sounds very um, galaxy brain. But it's uh, and the fact I do think that it matters a little bit. I don't want to use like a practice video to determine what somebody's going to do, but the fact that Sabonis was willing to talk about potentially taking threes and that he wrote about it in the Pacer diary tells me that he's intent on taking some. And 
that could open things up a little bit too. Plus he has a $1.3 million financial incentive if he makes uh-huh. an all-star team next year. So I think that if he doesn't make the all-star team next year, that the this version of the Pacers is, is having some problems. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So I think I'm going to lean the over, but I do think it's an interesting conversation with um, Kevin Durant re-entering the picture and maybe a potential few guys that we haven't even thought of. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, especially, I mean, Jalen Brown was borderline all-star this year. Right, too. right. Um, but I, I, yeah, I agree. I'm going to take the over. I think that he could make a couple more still. Uh, you know, obviously a couple more is that might be a stretch, but I, I definitely could see him making another one, maybe, maybe two. And who knows? I think it's, it's interesting. We talk, not, not us, but I think people in general sometimes talk about uh, Miles like he's an unfinished product, which he is. And then talk about Domas like he's, you know, completely polished and, and done where he's at. Um, and they're I the think same both age, of them, which is, uh, Yeah, both of them have room to improve. Yeah, both of them have exactly. stuff that you could see them both um, increasing their productivity in a different system, but in different ways. So, okay, I'll, I'll counter one more question then. What things do you think uh, Domas could do? What, what, you know, if you could put in like two or three things that, that could make him more of an all-star mainstay type of guy, or at least constantly in the conversation. Well, I mean, number one, last year it was heavily skewed towards teams that were winning. So, I mean, I think that the Pacers need to be winning basketball games. I mean, the Bucks had two all-stars, the Raptors had two, the Celtics had two, and the Heat all had two. That was eight right there. So if the Pacers are winning games, I think that they put themselves in the conversation to have somebody make it just like they did last year with Sabonis. Um, if he can repeat, I don't, I don't really have a reason why he wouldn't be able to repeat doing the mm-hmm. things that he just did unless, you know, there's some sort of lingering foot problem or, you know, something else going on. One thing that I didn't bring up is he did improve kind of like what I said with miles and the putting the ball on the floor out of face-up situations. It was not a very high increase in volume, but he did go from the uh, mid thirties from mid range to the mid forties. Um, so that, that was a little bit of a jump. And then, like I said, like, I just think that there's other things that he could be doing, whether it's inverse pick and roll. I think that they could be doing more with split cuts. If he becomes a little bit more comfortable with his right hand, not just in the post up, but also like what I wrote earlier this year about, you know, grab and go situations off the glass. If he can be comfortable going up the right side of the floor and going right into a dribble handoff, like there's definitely things out there that you can point at and be like, yeah, there's room for Sabonis to get better than what he is right now. Just like you can point at things for miles or, or you could imagine, you know, miles under a different system that he's been with Nate and think that he could pop off more than what he's been doing. Although, you know, he did get to play at five in the playoffs, but that was a little bit different, but yeah, I think both of them have space to get better. Yeah. Most definitely. They're both still young. Like I almost forgot that when we did the 25 and under pod that these are both still players that are under 25. I know. I thought about the same thing too. It's kind of weird to think about because when, uh, I mean, Miles got drafted the, the when I graduated high school. So, and for me, that feels like forever ago and it is to an extent, but like, it's, uh, it's just weird to go back and look at and see how long these guys have actually been around. Um, but did, did you have anything else you want to add before we get out of here? I think this was, uh, all, all around, this was definitely our, our longest pod we've recorded so far. With yeah, uh, I, I apologize to people if you got tired or bored of oh, listening to us. How can you get tired of this? This is great. 
But I appreciate everybody that listened to this series and I hope that you guys liked it and you can hit us up in the comments if, if you want us to do this way of a player review system. Again, it kind of turned out this way in part because the coaching search has demanded a lot of my time and Mark's been doing a lot of great stuff with the podcast in general with other guests as well as things that he's writing and we're going to be launching into draft and off-season content here this week too. So thanks to everybody that stuck with us through all three episodes of this pod. And hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. Oh, I definitely enjoyed doing it. And Caitlin, thank you for, for asking me to do it. This was great. Um, to everyone listening at home, please be sure to rate and review on Apple podcasts, check us out on Spotify. And of course, read us over at Indie Cornrows. And as Caitlin mentioned earlier, earlier, please hit us up in the comments and let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more of, what you don't want to hear more of, because we're doing this for you guys. We like doing it for you guys. And we, we, we both just love basketball. But, you know, if we can get the game to you a little bit more accessibly or just in a more fun way, let us know. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day and go Pacers.